I'm Tony Daniel. I'm the Director of Development here at Spirit Rock. Um, I know I've corresponded with almost everyone in this room. I've spoken to many, many of you on the phone. I just want to thank you so much for coming out here today to see me. <laughs> Maybe Rick a little bit too. <clears throat> um, it's such an honor to be in your presence and to express gratitude for your generosity to Spirit Rock. This day is dedicated to that. And it's a great privilege to be here and for all of us to share this with you. Um, your gifts of time, talent, and treasure are what nourishes this organization. Without you, this building would not be here. The staff would not be here. The food, the lights would not be here. The thousands of scholarship recipients would never have experienced the life-changing programs that take place here. In short, you create the reality that is Spirit Rock, and today is dedicated to you with our deepest gratitude. I also have tremendous gratitude for our teacher today. Dr. Rick Hansen is a frequent, <clears throat> excuse me, a frequent presenter here at Spirit Rock, regularly filling our uh, weekend programs on topics relating to the neurological and psychological underpinnings of meditation practice and spiritual life. Rick is a pioneer in the study of neuroplasticity, and my mother always told me that my head was filled with silly putty, and of course, Rick has now unfortunately proven her correct. <laughs> Come here, Tony. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Rick is also co-founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom, and perhaps coolest of all, as of today, his latest book, Buddha's Brain, The Practical Neuroscience of Happiness, Love, and Wisdom, uh, has spent 169 days on the Amazon Top 100 Nonfiction Book List. So it's quite an honor to have Rick here today. There's a ton to say about Rick, but I think I would rather give the floor to the man himself. So thank you all so much again for coming here today. Rick Hansen. Thanks. Thanks. Well, really on behalf of the Spirit Rock Board of Directors and its teachers and everyone who works here and all the squirrels and lizards. I have a special feeling for them personally. Uh, some of my deepest Dharma experiences here have been in the presence of uh, a squirrel, actually. Um, anyway, and, and also on behalf, in many ways, uh, those tens of thousands of people, known and unknown, great and small, near and far away, omitting none, as the Buddha said, on behalf of them as well, so benefited by you. I would really like to welcome you here today, you to here today and truly express the gratitude of Spirit Rock uh, for your company, your presence, your gifts, your contributions, and everything else. Um, I uh, was on the board here for nine years, and throughout that time, we would routinely talk about how grateful we were to the people who contribute in so many ways. Uh, we'll talk a little bit later about the many forms of generosity, or dana as it is traditionally known uh, in Buddhism, uh, the least of which in many ways is money. It's what gets the most press, of course, in our economic uh, culture here. But the most important forms of dana actually are things like time, patience, forbearance, attention, good heart, and so forth. And this room is full of your dana right here and right now. Uh, this institution, this land is full of your dana. It's uh, woven into the roots of the trees, literally, that, li that uh, live here. 
and in the foundations of this very building we're sitting in. And uh, today is really about you in particular, instead of giving, because you've done enough of that, or you've done a lot of that, although, you know, they wouldn't break anyone's heart if you kept on giving, all right? Um, today is about receiving. Today is about you receiving the fruits of your own giving and our gratitude and appreciation uh, for you doing that. So about myself, uh, a word or two. Uh, as I said, uh, I've been on the board here. My family and I started practicing here about 15 years ago. I first began meditating in 1974. It was very romantic. It was on the hills of Southern California. I had long hair and a wood flute, you know, <laughs> sitting in the hills. It was very great. But I knew as soon as I started reading the Dharma, you know, in classics like Three Pillars of Zen or um, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, particularly a, a more Zen-inspired beginning, I knew that it was right, especially in the teaching that is so at the heart of what we're getting into today, which is the reality of interdependence, the truth of intertwining. That, um, you know, as John Donne, the poet, said a long time ago, ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. For better and for worse, it tolls for all of us. Uh, there's just one bell, really. So on the basis of that um, insight or, or felt recognition of the truth, you know, my own path twisted and turned. Uh, I came back to Buddhism maybe around 20 years ago in a big way, then engaged more and more at Spirit Rock, um, and then I've had the privilege over the last several years in being able to teach here. And so... Um, oh, maybe a little more. And you're recording, right, Jeff? I'm recording. Great. I have some of these if anyone would like to wear. Yay. I'll try to keep my voice up. It tends to soften. Um, yeah. It's great, too, to think about the impact of what we do here in the larger culture in the sense that, as Tony and I were talking earlier, um, I'm certainly personally happy, you know, that my book's done well. But really, even more than that, it just knocks me out that a book with a title like Buddha's Brain has gotten that much recognition. You know, and it's about the material. It's about the, the recognition of the truths of suffering and the end of suffering, which is the one thing the Buddha said he taught, suffering and its end. That was his focus. And that recognition is getting more and more recognition in the culture. Um, and uh, the, the widening ripples of that, including from what Spirit Rock does, are really quite amazing. It's interesting. I've, I've had the chance to go around more and more to different Dharma centers in different places, including abroad, uh, Australia, um, Europe, uh, North America, other places as well. And from that perspective, you really begin to appreciate that very often what we take for granted, which is our own home community, is actually truly a world-class institution. People routinely look to Spirit Rock uh, as a pathbreaker. I mean, internally, uh, certainly on the board, uh, you know, I'm very aware of its foibles and imperfections and, you know, unmet on opportunities and so forth. But from the outside, it's quite remarkable to appreciate the benefit that has rippled out from Spirit Rock, including the ways that other Dharma centers study us, including the ways that our uh, family programs and diversity programs and other programs here, while far from perfect, have actually, are actually legendary in Buddhism worldwide as path-breaking institutions. I mean, literally, for example, just walking in with my wife to the Gratitude Hut and seeing the way that it's been revised recently to really appreciate, long overdue, the place of women in Buddhism. I'm noticing that the great majority of you are women, which is not uncommon because the people that so often feed the roots of the network 
that um, keeps this world alive are female in ways uh, unsung, generally speaking. So Spirit Rock there too has been something of a pioneer. Again, far from perfect, but in ways that are really, really making a difference in the world. So it's in that larger context that my plan today is to uh, move along through some kind of, I think, very neat material, uh, do some things that are experiential as well. And if you've ever been to any one of my presentations, do this one more like jazz and poetry uh, than, you know, uh, often the way I present here. Okay, so uh, in, as you can see here, these are the gifts of a superior person. I think one of the, my favorite line in the five is the one at the very end. In other words, sometimes there's um, a reluctance to give as if somehow the giving uh, lessens the recipient of the gift. And that obstructs giving. And seeing oneself as uh, you know, lessened in some way by receiving a gift also tends to obstruct giving. So I especially want to invite you here today to really appreciate the fact that uh, whatever giving is coming your way from us today, there's no sense of denigration there. And you really can take it in all the way through and through. So these are my hoped for topics. Uh, they brought me here to kind of bring in a little neurodharma stuff, so I'll do that. Uh, I'll show you some neat pictures of the brain and other good things. Uh, but in particular, I want to really get at the um, nature of us as giving and benevolent and why, uh, to keep that circle going, it's actually very important to receive. So in particular today, important for you to receive, as you, as you will, uh, the gratitude of Spirit Rock and receive the recognition as well of um, all the contributions truly in ways large and small, seen and unseen, uh, that you've been the author of. In context, I'll, as usual, try to function at the center of these three circles. I think they're the sweet spot where um, lots and lots of good things can be found. And as Oppenheimer said a while ago, and we see it really in the West as Buddhism spread, you know, in its own long history. It's kind of remarkable to appreciate that the Buddha was walking and talking, right, in the dusty uh, roads of northern India 500 years before Jesus was born and another 1,000 years or so before Muhammad was born. Um, although probably a thousand years after Moses or so was born. So, you know, you've got to put it in perspective there. But anyway, throughout its long history as Buddhism has moved through different civilizations and now in the West, um, it's constantly had some kind of encounter with other traditions and teachings. And it's very often at that intersection of where these two come together that uh, the greatest uh, insights and the, and the most innovative methods are to be found. As the Buddha himself said, uh, a long time ago, take nothing on faith alone. And that's one reason why I think that of the world's great contemplative traditions, the one that has had the greatest intersection with Western science has been Buddhism, grounded in its fundamentally empirical or fact-based stance, as well as pragmatism. You know, as Dr. Phil says in his great Dharma question, how's that working for you? That's the Buddha 2,500 years ago. How's that working for you? Suffering or its end, right? And so uh, here too we have it, you know, to see for yourself what really is working for you, you know, for better and for worse. Or as Dogen put it, great questioning, great enlightenment. So even today, you know, as I go through some stuff that's kind of at the cutting edge of, of, of Buddhism's encounter with science, um, you know, keep questioning, right? Uh, 
I think about Ani Tenzin Palma's quote. She's one of the people honored in the Gratitude Hut, which if you've never seen it, it's really worth going in there and just kind of marinating for a while, you know, in the field. I think that is a loka. It's a very charged place, that little hut, which is on your right as you walk down just past the gate. Um, anyway, Ani Tenzin Palmo, uh, English woman who spent 12 years in a cave in Tibet. You got to respect someone who spent 12 years in a cave anywhere, right? Um, practicing. And um, she said, you know, we have no idea what a thought is, even though we're thinking it all day long, right? So I appreciate, you know, a kind of openness and, and not knowing, you know, what in the world is going on here. All right? So let's dive in. So generosity in Buddhism. Who else but Albert Einstein to introduce this topic? Uh, as he says in the slide, you know, it's a kind of optical delusion, something that the Buddha and his great and innovative teachings on not-self, anatta, 2,500 years ago, I think, would have appreciated. I don't know about you, it's right out of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure in my own mind, but I imagine these great people throughout history, you know. Can you imagine a dialogue between, you know, the Buddha and Albert Einstein? You know, hang, you know, I don't know what, moderated by Ariana Huffington or, <laughs> I don't know, just <laughs> the Mike Fockles <laughs> or Oprah, even better at some of the possibilities. That would be worth watching, wouldn't it? That would be worth watching. Anyway, um, obviously everything is connected to everything else. You know, as, the, um, as Einstein noted and as the Buddha noted long before, and it's, it's in this field of interconnectedness that we talk today about generosity giving and receiving. So I want to talk about connection at different scales, all right? And what you see is the same phenomenon at all kinds of different scales in terms of interdependence. If I could have, I, I would show you a picture of quantum entanglement, these little particles that are absolutely woven into the fabric of the universe. Our own fabric deep down is foamy. In other words, they talk about quantum foam in, at which in both space and time, it's, it's foamy. And there's this kind of miraculous, fertile emptiness in between every emergent instant and every emergent particle, right? That's our basic nature. Unfortunately, there are no pictures of that, you know, but uh, I'll start with a pesky little neuron, okay? Scaled up with, I have no idea, probably several trillion atoms inside it, uh, is a good basic neuron, you know, the basic building block of the brain uh, that right here and right now inside your head there are about 100 billion neurons supported by another trillion cells in the three pounds of tofu inside the coconut, all right? Right here and right now, this little pesky on-off switch basically, receiving inputs at the far left-hand end uh, as you see the screen and then based on the moment-to-moment -moment summation five to fifty times a second, typically from about 5,000 other neurons, 5,000 connections per neuron, Based on those 5,000 inputs, millisecond by millisecond, it fires or doesn't fire, and it's connecting with other neurons. That gives us, by the way, about 500 trillion connections inside the brain. 500 trillion synapses linking 100 billion neurons to each other, on the average 5,000 each. So at a larger scale now, we have a picture, particularly in the lower sets of slides, of a schematic of the connecting pathways of various hubs of neurons. Now we're moving up in our scale from individual neurons making 5,000 connections with each other interdependently arising to the brain altogether in which large-scale nodes or clusters of neurons make other connections as you see in these highways of information and flow and energy and ultimately consciousness moving back and forth. 
And then going to another level of scale, we talk, think about areas of the brain for consciousness. Something as mysterious and amazing and still not understood as consciousness uh, is enabled by large-scale networks of brain regions such that if you disturb the interconnectedness, the interdependence, the relationship among those um, uh, neural regions, you can anesthetize a person so that they can you know, go through surgery, let's say. Uh, or, alas, sometimes in other circumstances, damage their brain. The point is that even at a larger scale, you've got to have things working together to create consciousness and to create larger wholes. Then going to the next scale, one of my favorite slides, another day at the office. These are some astronauts repairing the space station. I think, although you can't quite see it in the scale of this picture, they're floating above the tip, the boot of Italy the very bottom of Italy. I think that's where they are, just above the Mediterranean. Again, partnering with each other, helping each other out, you know, interdependently arising at a larger scale, 100 miles or so above the Earth. Okay? And then at a whole other scale, we have Mother Earth sitting here, a jewel in the sky. Right? Interdependent, Gaia, intertwining. Today is 10, 10, 10, right? only happens once a century, obviously. Um, a very special day, Earth Day. Uh, respect for the intertwining interdependence of everyone in this very fragile skin of air. It's about five, to set, five miles high. is basically breathable. You know, sitting on a planet that's 8,000 miles in diameter. After that, it's brutally cold out there and very inhospitable to life. Here we have this little jewel. And as we sit here, hundreds and hundreds, 350 organizations or more, probably 35,000 actually worldwide, are doing things right now to help our planet become a better place. You know, and we're joined with them in this undertaking. And then going one step further out, this is a picture from a little orbiter going around Mercury of the Earth and its moon. Intertwining. If it were not for the moon, there probably would not have been the tidal flows on this planet that uh, so helped the emergence of, a life, of life in these tidal pools. Right? Here we have the Earth and its kid brother, kid sister, right? twirling their way through the universe. Next level of intertwining, we have a picture of sunset on Mars. This is a little robot that's taking a picture of the sun. See how small it is there? I don't know if you can quite see the definition of it in this picture, uh, but that's sunset on Mars. Going a step further out, this is cl these are clouds of gas about a light year across, about six trillion miles across. This is a nebula, a star-forming region, intertwining and swirling the cradle of life. And as some of what it produces, stars, we see here now a globular cluster. Again, interdependently arising, swirling through space. Some of the oldest stars in the galaxy are in these globular clusters. And then going out to another scale, this is the Andromeda galaxy, our nearest neighbor. It's about a million light years away. It will fuse with our galaxy in ways that I'll show you in a minute in a few billion years. Nothing to worry about meanwhile. Um, <laughs> it's about twice our size, but it's a good uh, example of what the Milky Way looks like. Again, a huge family swirling in space, interdependently arising. Then we have galaxies interacting with each other. 
I love this one because, of course, it looks like a heart, right? These are two galaxies coming together in a pas de deux, kind of like ballet dancers. Each time they go past each other, their gravity brings them closer and closer together until they gradually swirl and form one coherent galaxy, much as our own Milky Way probably has done over billions of years. And then going out to another scale, we see a cluster of galaxies here, one in the middle and then another half dozen or so kind of swirling around it in one sort of large-scale dance in terms of their gravitational field, interacting with each other, arising independence upon each other. And then for the last picture, I want to show you um, what the Hubble Space Telescope saw when it took a long exposure down at a very dark point in the sky so that it could, over a period of many days, suck light in from five or even more billion light years away, which is to say five, six, seven, or eight billion years back in time. And they really wondered what they would see, you know, looking at this pinhole in the sky, size of a dime held at 200 feet, right? What would they see? The eye of God winking back, you know? Alfred E. Newman, you know, what me worry? This is what they saw. There are about 200 galaxies in that picture. Again, the resolution's not that great. This is the deep field shot, which you can download. And, and from NASA, the resolution's quite amazing. So about 200 galaxies in that picture from which they extrapolated that 200 billion or so galaxies exist in the universe, this being just one of them. Again, a very, very, very large scale upon which we all dependently arise. I don't know. For me, this stuff just takes me right out. There I am getting my knickers in a twist because my wife has made some crack about my driving. And then I go home, I look at this laptop, and I go, wow, what am I worried about? <laughs> okay. So in this context, you know, it's appropriate to ask oneself, what are the benefits of generosity? How does generosity work? in this larger context in which I've given just some illustrations of, only a partial set of all the possible illustrations of the interdependence on many, many scales, both tiny from the quantum scale all the way out to the large scale of the universe uh, in which 200 billion galaxies can be seen in a pinhole in the sky. You know, in that context, uh, in the Dharma, in the Buddhist tradition, generosity and giving certainly supports uh, the monastics, right? Uh, the Buddha here is addressing monks. He could well have been addressing nuns, monastics in general. There's a long history of interdependence between um, the monastics and the lay community. In uh, the West, there isn't that much of a monastic community, although there's some of one. For example, a Bayagiri monastery has a, is a sister organization to Spirit Rock with flows of interdependent benefit between Spirit Rock, which is more of a lay community, a householder community, and a Bayagiri, which is monastic. That said, in many ways um, that are analogous to this, the kind of giving that occurs um, uh, through from householders and, and uh, people in everyday life also really benefits the teachers here uh, who teach retreats, uh, who help keep this place going and, you know, in a more institutionalized kind of way, uh, you know, keep the lights burning. I look around a room like this and I think, you know, probably, you know, about a third of the lights I see in this room are lit up right now by donation only. 
You know, in other words, all the fees that are paid here over the course of the year cover only about two-thirds of the expenses altogether, including support for teachers. So about a third of it is given by donation. And a lot of the donations that are given here are donations of time, not just money. All right? So that certainly helps. You know, the leadership continue, the teaching stream continue, and all the rest of that. But it's also the case that besides nourishing others, generosity nourishes oneself. So you can see in this teaching, uh, the Buddha here is talking to a woman who's a lay supporter. It could it be, you know, the points he's making, of course, could apply uh, to all of us. You know, in giving long life, beauty, happiness, and strength, we receive all that for ourselves. And again, here I invite you to continually open to the felt recognition of how your own giving, going out there in the world, is coming back, you know, nourishing you also with long life, beauty broadly defined, happiness, and strength. It's interesting, too, that giving is so fundamentally central to community. You know, this is a famous sutta where Ananda looks around and sees the community of uh, others, other practitioners around him. Ananda was the Buddha's cousin and closest attendant and the one who apparently had an extraordinary auditory memory so that when you read a sutta that begins, thus, thus have I heard, that's Ananda speaking from memory, which is kind of neat, his voice coming down to us, channeling the Buddha's voice across the many centuries. Anyway, Ananda looks at the community and goes, and, and you know, basically the community's half the holy life. In other words, there's what I do from the inside myself, and then there's what they do for me that supports the holy life. And the Buddha replied famously, not so, Ananda, not so. The community is the whole of the holy life because it's through the community that your own capacities to nurture yourself have a foundation and can be sustained. It's interesting, too, about the way in which benevolence works in daily life, you know, if um, that our own giving opens our heart and even giving to others that we don't always feel given back from can reduce our quarrels with them. I think about, you know, uh, the title of a book a spiritual teacher of mine wrote a long time ago called The Eating Gorilla Comes in Peace. Uh, it's that there's a place for, through the act of giving, through coming in peace, um, that we settle our quarrels with others. You know, because when we really appreciate interdependence, you know, when we look at others and feel the sorrow in their heart, when we see the being behind the eyes, you know, as Issa said, uh, in the shade of the cherry blossom, a symbol of transience, evanescence, falling away, disappearing, uh, you know, looking at people and realizing that they too will die, you know, that moment in uh, Robin Williams' uh, The Dead Poet Society, you may have seen the film where he's showing his young and studly young men uh, in a, a posh private school on the East Coast, picture of young guys exactly like them, you know, sporting teams and so forth. And then he basically says, everyone in this picture is dead. You know, you too. Um, your day will come one day, you know. So seize the day, right? When you look out and you realize that we're all you know, leaves in autumn, getting ready to fall to the ground, even on the day we're born, just a longer autumn, you know, for a baby. Uh, when you realize that, and you realize other, everyone else around you is another leaf about to fall, you know, who can quarrel? Who can quarrel in the shade of the cherry blossom tree? 
You know, giving also in its deepest form, generosity, besides being an expression of interdependence, it's a fantastic practice of letting go. You know, I often think about how the closed fist, you know, is like the, the self, the I. But when we open the fist like that, you know, then the I lets go. And as Ajahn Chah said, you know, if you let go a little, you'll have a little happiness. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of happiness. If you let go completely, you'll be completely happy. This is a good quote. I, I think about this quote quite often. So, as I said earlier, generosity takes many forms. And we tend to highlight financial generosity, treasure, as Tony said a little while ago. But I think it's so powerful to appreciate how much generosity comes in non-monetary forms. There's a kind of emphasis, which I'll get to a bit more later in this culture, on money, which makes us tend to monetize our transactions with people. As uh, Henry Ford said, the business of America is business. And I would say, not so, Henry, not so. (laughs) Um, So for a moment here, I invite you as a kind of reflection to just review the last year or so. Uh, or whatever period of time is meaningful for you, maybe even going all the way back to your first engagements with Spirit Rock, and reflect on some of the many forms of your own personal generosity, your own contribution or giving here. For example, just think about the attention you've given, the attentiveness you've offered, the way you've brought your mind back again and again in so many settings, including here today if it starts to wander. Or your heart, your giving of heart, giving of your practice and time. Gifts of service, Gifts of patience, you know, working through with others. The gift of being willing to learn and grow. Notice any resistance inside yourself, any obstruction to recognizing your own contributions as if doing so would be bad or vain or shameful somehow. And see if you can relax that, if there is any obstruction. To really open to a genuine clarity, a clear seeing of some of the many ways you've been giving here. Then what's it like to feel like a giver? What's it like to feel like someone who's been giving?
one nice thing about giving is that it, or one true thing, as well as a nice thing about giving, is that it expresses in a deep way something that's completely unique about human beings, which is to say our uniquely loving and generous nature. So I want to offer some reflections about that and how that relates to Donna. So if you think about it, you know, we've been evolving a really long time. I think I sometimes think about tightening this slide, what a long, strange trip it's been, right? And during that long run, generosity, altruism, love, kindness are very rare in the animal kingdom. For example, is the got this slide? This slide is some cool details. You know, I appreciate the fact. How many of you have blue eyes, right? Blue or green eyes? Come on. Raise them eye, raise them eye, raise them eye. Don't be afraid. You are mutants. <laughs> Seriously. No one had blue eyes until about 5,000 years ago. Some little kid was born probably around Denmark who had a lot of grandchildren who were very popular. <laughs> and here you are today, all right? Evolution keeps going. Uh, during that long run, though, uh, you know, as the brain evolved, this thing about generosity and love and giving and kindness and all the rest of that was very, very unusual. We began with this sort of inner lizard brain, the inner iguana. You know, it really is a zoo in here, right? As they say in AA, the mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Never go in alone, right? It's like a zoo. <laughs> Be careful about the zoo, but it's a menagerie. You got to love them, right? Even though they just drive you crazy. It's like your kids, okay? The inner iguana, the inner rat, the inner monkey, the inner caveman, cavewoman, they're, they're in there, right? Driving us crazy, but if we fight them, it's not going to work that well, right? We've got to make our peace with them and kind of harness and marshal them. But if you look down on that brainstem, there wasn't much loving kindness there in that uh, inner core and even coming up. There is a bit, but not that much. So as we evolved, we developed three fundamental motivational systems. The original one was the avoiding system. That's what you see in the lizard brain, the reptile brain. Freezes, you know, stops. It's a very effective strategy in the wild when we've got predators who are not very bright. For example, a frog cannot see, move, cannot see a stationary fly. You could put a fly two inches in front of a hungry frog, a frog and it would not see the fly. But if the fly moves, so there's safety in freezing, in avoiding, in dealing with the unpleasant, with aversion. Then comes approaching. That came in with kind of the later reptile brain and the early mammalian brain, pursuing carrots, you know, pursuing the pleasant, ramping up, arousing to get those good things, to pursue the pleasant. And then most recently, and I'll say more about this, came the attaching system, which seeks um, proximity to loved ones, bonds with young, and sometimes bonds with mates, even for life. Now, of these three systems, it's really, I think, cool to appreciate the ways in which love, broadly defined, has been the driver of the evolution of the human brain, the brain in general, really, over the last 50 million years or so. And it's done so in three major steps. For example, Birds and mammals have bigger brains in proportion to body weight than reptiles and fish do. Why is that? What do, repti what do mammals and birds do that reptiles and fish don't do? 
They raise their young. Yeah, they nurture the young. They form pair bonds. Uh, they create villages that, uh, uh, to raise a child. Uh, it's also true that primates are enormously social. There's a direct correlation between the sociability of the primate species and the size of its own brain, right? In other words, the more, that, uh, the more complex uh, the, the social structure in a primate species, uh, the bigger the grooming group, uh, the, uh, you know, the more uh, it layered the politics and the gossip, the alpha, the beta, who's in, who's out, all the rest of that, you know, the bigger the primate brain. Because to take advantage of, uh, you know, the benefits, really, of social skills. Because male and female primates who have better social skills have greater reproductive success. They have more grandchildren, all right? So social skills are very adaptive. They're very useful in evolution. And then, then along came, you know, the earliest humans who made stone tools two and a half million years ago with brains about a third our size. But the tripling in volume of your brain and mine over the last three million years or so has mainly been related to social capacities, to cooperative planning, to empathy, altruism, bonding, attachment, language, uh, the sense of being a person in relationship with other persons. All the advantages of that, you know, the bands that had better teamwork evolving out there in the plains of the Serengeti a million uh, or more years ago, did better competing with other bands for scarce resources. So on the run, I'm going to show you some pictures now. There is teamwork. These are ants, you know, with, in effect, lizard brains or ant brains. Let's not forget, we share about 20% of our DNA with bananas. So, you know, we've got to share some of our DNA with ants as well, all right? There is some social connection there, but, you know, not that much sociability at the ant level. On the other hand, as Darwin pointed out, with mammals and then primates and especially with humans, uh, what he would consider sentient beings, as he said, you know, sentient beings developed through evolution um, in large part and ultimately with the pleasure derived from sociability and from loving our families, particularly families in the broadest possible sense. So primates do something that's very unusual, very unusual in the animal kingdom. They share food. Right? If you think about it, you know, in a very tough and lethal environment, why in the world would an animal share food? Altruism has been a very hot topic of research these days because it's inexplicable. In other words, why would an animal have evolved, including an animal like us, to be at all generous to, with others unless it's based on a very direct quid pro quo? You know, how do you account for all the altruism you find uh, you know, among primates where they give up things with no immediate return and benefit to themselves? All right? But it happens because uh, at the, in terms of biological evolution, you know, and reproductive advantage, which is the engine of biological evolution, if you're altruistic to others who share genes with you, right, that helps pass on your genes, even if it leads ultimately and alas to your own death. That's the, one of the biological bases for altruism. I'm not trying to be reductionistic and reduce altruism to a strictly biological formulation, but that it, it is one of the biological bases. So we have monkeys sharing bananas with each other. Polar bears giving each other a hug. That's a baby porcupine with a, with a cat eating out of the same bowl. 
not attacking each other. There are many, many examples actually among the social animals who hang out with each other quite comfortably in a relaxed kind of way. And one of the most remarkable of all, um, as you may know, here in the Bay Area even, there was an instance of a large humpback whale, I believe, caught up in fishing lines and so forth out by the Farallons. So a year or two ago, I guess, a group of divers, someone found out about it. They radioed marine rescue and so forth. Um, I'm not going to fully do credit here to the organizations involved in this, which were remarkable. Anyway, a number of divers came out around this enormous um, whale. Uh, I have no idea how many tons. 40 tons, roughly, I think, is the size of that kind of a whale. And gradually, painstakingly, across many hours, got right next to it, where if it twitched in the wrong way, that would be the chop. That would be the end of that particular diver. And line by line, cut away these lines away from the whale, including lines that were caught in its mouth. I mean, it's very, very intimate what they did, of course, across uh, many, many hours. And then finally, when the whale was free, uh, the, the account of the divers was that it, he or she swam around the divers just almost ecstatically and then went up to each one, thanking each one for their help. Whales, um, porcupines and cats, humans, monkeys, even ants working together. Um, in the natural world, we tend to think about conflict. That's what gets the National Geographic TV specials, you know, it's the lions going after the gazelle. But most of life, certainly in the natural world, and even in the human world, which is, of course, a natural world too, um, is really characterized by a kind of Donna economy in which there is an ongoing flow of benevolence back and forth between beings and among beings in ways that are not, uh, cannot be accounted for in the dry ledgers you know, of the um, bean counters of the world. This is the natural economy. So many gifts flowing back and forth in a circular kind of way. That's the economy we're talking about here. Yordana going out, coming back, or as Albert Schweitzer talks here, you know, it really respects the depth of altruism, the depth of altruism in people in general who give without much thought of receiving. All right, think of all the little giving we do in a day. Not a big deal. We make way for people in an elevator. We look at someone with warmth. We wish them well walking down the street. We stand aside. Uh, we put some money in a homeless person's cup. Uh, you know, we do what we can for the people around us. We don't think about it. We offer a lap. You know, I wrote a piece a long time ago about the giving that parents do. It's not just parents who give, of course. But, you know, we give continually, even when the well seems like it's run dry, don't we? And that's the true economy here. Uh, that is the, the uh, portion of all the flow of goods and services that's beneath the waterline, you know, of what gets reported in the Wall Street Journal. One of the nice things about giving love in this Donna economy is that it returns us to our true nature. It brings us back to home base, right? In ways that I think have some remarkable implications. And appreciating this Donna economy, in other words, opening our eyes, waking up from this optical delusion that Einstein wrote about, 
uh, in one of the earlier slides, helps draw us into recognizing this large economy of flow we're involved in, uh, an economy of attentiveness, of eyes gazing, of warm-heartedness, given and gotten back and forth as truly the whole of things. I ask myself a lot as a brain guy who has a deep interest in suffering, <laughs> um, what, what's going on in the brain of someone who's enlightened? They still have a brain, right? You can't just shut down those systems. They don't just transform. Um, you know, if you do scans of the brains of people who are very, very far along in practice, you know, lifetime hours, 50, 80,000 hours of meditation, right? Lifespan, I mean, multiple three-year retreats, things of that sort. Um, you know, their brains look enormous, just completely like a regular person's. There are certain specific things that are quite remarkably different, but on the whole, they're very much like anyone else. So the question is, what's the nature of the brain when it's, you know, in a state of self-actualization or even full awakening, going all the way out? Well, I think, and I think science would agree, that the home base of the brain, in terms of these three systems I talked about before, avoid, approach, and attach, is calm, contented, and caring. That's what we truly default to when we're not disturbed, when we're not in pain, when we're not afraid, uh, when we're not biochemically disturbed, when we're not hungry, uh, when those we love are not being attacked and so forth. This is what we settle into. This is who we really are. Calm, contented, caring, and creative as a kind of an emergent property of all three of those. This is who we really are, right? And this is who we are also, isn't it true? when we're grounded in this dana economy, when we're grounded in the flow of giving and getting as a natural condition. Or represented here in this image, you know, of a triangle of what I call the responsive mode. In other words, it's a brain. It's the real brain. It's the brain that evolved. But it's a brain that is settled into its baseline or default condition. The problem is, to survive, Mother Nature drives us from home. Right? The crackle of a twig, the you know, cough of a leopard nearby, or the frown across a dinner table, or some talking head on Fox News, whatever is your own personal needle banger, you know. I think it's really good to practice with um, political opponents because uh, they often are the hardest to practice with. I've known a number of people who have vast stores of loving kindness, you know, omitting none except Dick Cheney. <laughs> or pick your own personal side, you know, or Noam Chomsky or whatever the equivalent might be. Anyway, um, so to survive, we leave home. You know, these systems activate and they drive us into uh, ways of being that the Buddha characterized as greed, hatred, I could add heartache, and surrounded by delusion, you know, when these three systems are triggered, right? Hatred for the first one, greed for the second one, heartache for the third all informed by ignorance, ignorance uh, uh, that doesn't see that everything changes continually and that everything is con always connected to everything else. All right? So, you know, that's why when I look at this slide, when I think about how many minutes of the day, look at the front page, think about the evening news, think about world affairs. This is the world today. This is our world. This is my brain. This is my mind, you know, still a fair chunk of the time. I suspect it's your mind, your brain, too. And if it's not yours, think about it's the other people you know, because as 
Jean-Paul Sartre said, hell is other people, right? So at least the other people are in this state. So what are we going to do about it, right? What are we going to do? How in the world can we, you know, come back to our true nature? In other words, faced with this choice, how can we use the power of giving and the power of love to come back to our true nature, to live more in the responsive mode that is um, our nature at the other side? I think of love and uh, broadly defined, including generosity, as a kind of resourcing. Through giving love, we build up resources in ourselves. Or even most fundamentally, it's a kind of resourcing. Through love, we go back to source. The instant we move into a state of generosity, the instant we move into kindness or forbearance or giving in all its many forms, the instant we move into Donna mode, whoop, we're in the left-hand triangle just that fast. You know, it's a wonderful thing to paraphrase um, Sharon Salzberg, I think, metaphor about mindfulness. She said, mindfulness is like sitting in a lovely meadow surrounded by flowers, and every so often trains go by of, diff- of thoughts and reactions and feelings and the cases we make in our mind about other people. And there we are sitting in the meadow, and there the train is going by. Wow. What a train. Wow. Okay? And then every so often you find yourself hijacked by the train. There you are in the dining car suddenly, you know, wow, I'm in the train and I've been in this train for untold minutes, right? Mm, grinding away in the train. But as soon as you realize you're in the train, what happens? Boop, back to the meadow, right? As soon as we step out of this right-hand triangle through generosity, uh, through a felt recognition of the interdependence of everything, whoop, we're back in the meadow, in the left-hand, side, left-hand triangle, back in our in our home base. And the wonderful thing about this from a neurological standpoint is, as they say in Tibet, truly, we can take the fruit as the path. In other words, the left-hand triangle, our home base, our true nature, given to us by evolution, maybe, who knows, mysteriously informed by something radiantly transcendental, living all the way through it, arising uh, through us and as us, here and now, all right? Um, you know, when we ground in that mode, because, as I'll talk about in a moment, neurons that fire together, wire together, when we stimulate the neural substrates of this home base of the human brain, we actually strengthen them in our own case and make it easier and easier to return to the ground of our true responsive mode, our true generous way of being in the world, and we make it harder and harder to get knocked out of that mode by what Shantideva called the eight worldly winds, right? Of gain and loss, pleasure and ill repute, um, pleasure and pain, and uh, praise and blame, right? Uh, The more and more we stimulate the neural substrates, whoops, I did it wrong, of the right-hand mode. You were looking puzzled, and I was puzzled why you were puzzled. But now, see, it's interdependent. But anyway, now it's this one. This is a good one. Okay, get over here. Get out of that left side. Over here, over here. Okay, anyway, so the more we're over here, right, the more we build up the neural substrates because of three fundamental facts about your brain. Ready? The first fact is your brain changes, your mind changes, for better or worse. The left side is the better caffeine, sugar, I think, a little better. Uh, The right-hand side, a guy getting a concussion. Not good. 
On the other hand, as the mind changes, the brain changes, both temporarily and in lasting ways. In other words, the fleeting flow of immaterial thought and feeling and longing and consciousness and wholesomeness and unwholesomeness sculpts the brain as it passes through it. For example, in this picture, this is a meditator, someone who's doing boundless compassion inside an MRI and who is uh, really concentrating because that's what you got to do inside an MRI. And as a result, it's a man, he's activating the anterior, which means frontal cingulate cortex, which is a part of the brain that's very involved in the executive control of attention. So he's activating that part of his brain as he uses it. That part's only about 2 to 3% more metabolically active. It's not like the rest of the brain has gone dark, but um, he's using it and therefore he's stimulating it. Okay? That's an example of how the mind is changing, therefore the brain is changing. He's bringing attention to something, so he's changing his own brain. But those changes are not just temporary, but can, with practice, become lasting. This is a picture of uh, a composite of, it's kind of hard, I think, to see a lass up there, but trust me, that there are three regions uh, that are actually measurably thicker in the brains of long-term meditators as compared to controls. So in other words, people who routinely practice meditation, how many of you routinely, at least once a month, practice meditation? Get most of the hands in the room that way, good. Okay, good. Um, people who do that, you included, uh, most likely, have a thicker part of the brain because of you know neurons that fire together, wire together. Number one is the insula, part of the brain that tracks the internal state of the body as well as um, deep feelings and as well as empathy for the feelings of others. Second part of the brain that is strengthened through practice is uh, there the frontal regions that have to do with the executive control of attention. That's what we do a lot when we meditate. We're mindful, we're, and we're mindful of mindfulness, if you will. And then at the very top, number three, is a little strip up here of somatosensory awareness because people are tuning into their bodies. All right? In other words, if you use it over time, you stimulate it, and therefore you strengthen it. In fact, to the point, as you can see in the bottom slide here, of defeating the normal process of cortical thinning with aging. Normally, we lose about 10,000 brain cells a day. That may seem like a lot, but if you start with 1.1 trillion, it means by the time of your 80th birthday, you've lost only about 4% or so. All right? Plus, new neurons are being born every day inside your head. Okay? About five or 10,000 a day. Um, but people normally lose brain cells net-net. That's the red squares here. These are the controls. But people who routinely use those parts of the brain, the blue dots, the meditators, did not experience cortical thinning in those regions over time. Use it or lose it, or the survival of the busiest, right? It's like building a muscle, you know? If we activate or stimulate a wholesome state of mind and we do it repeatedly, we cannot help but build out its neural substrate which takes us to the third fact about the mind and the brain. You can use the mind to change the brain, to change your mind for the better over time. All right? And that's a wonderful thing to be able to do at a time when so many of us feel so buffeted by large-scale forces beyond our control. Right? So grounding in the responsive mode, the right-hand triangle, all right, including through taking the fruits of generosity as a kind of path, is especially important in these depleting times. 
basically the, in these two modes. One mode, the responsive mode, is restorative. It's recharging. It's refueling. It's where we come back to home base, we ground, we get centered, and we get ready to go out again. Then there's a second mode where we expend, we pour out. There's a place for pouring out and expending, all right? But to sustain the marathon, you can't do it at the pace of a sprint. And it becomes extremely important, especially these days, where Americans literally on the average have the longest work week of any um, you know, country on the planet, uh, even longer than Jap Japan as an average, all right? And think of all the many, many things people do, corporate downsizing. You know, here at Spirit Rock, you know, uh, people like Tony are doing the jobs today of uh, what were done by three or three and a half people a few years ago. So smile at Tony on the way out the door. Anyway, um, anyway, yeah, in these depleting times, it's so important to do every little thing we can to keep coming back to that home base, you know, and filling our cup up again and again. So... What is it that returns us to that home base? What helps us sustain our own giving? You know, what keeps this Donna economy going? I think it's a circle of love. To give, we have to receive. And that's the counterintuitive thing I really want to stress today. In other words, we, we focus a lot on giving, but to sustain the giving we have to receive. So for example, if someone gives to us, it's really important to actually receive their gift. Think about a time when, and it could be recent even, where you're trying to give somebody something, a simple thing, a compliment, you know, or a little bit of help, right? Or some recognition of a good quality in them. I won't even go to advice. Let's just not talk about advice because, you know, it's not always wanted. What's it like when you're trying to give somebody something and they won't accept it? And you can see they're, it's not, they're not accepting it for a good reason, that for some reason they're, they're contracted around it or they don't want to be in your debt or they're afraid you have some kind of hidden agenda, it's a Trojan horse or whatever it is, you know. It's, a, it's an obstruction in the field of giving. That's problematic. You know, I think about how gracious monastics are. I was on retreat here just a little while ago, actually, and walking around earlier and feeling it again, what it was like to be here on retreat. And during that time, uh, one of the, it was a monastic retreat, and I was thinking of what it's like for the, for the monks and nuns um, to receive food at lunchtime when we went through that ceremony, and how beautiful it was for them to just so happily receive. You know, they don't refuse. They may gently let you know... Uh, that's not quite allowed for me to take, but, you know, generally speaking, they will take whatever you put in their bowl, right? They receive it. Also, there's the dana of appreciating the fruits of our own giving, right? Of really recognizing, wow, that through my own giving, I've created benefit out there. Doing that helps us really appreciate and ground in our practice in the interdependent nature of everything. So there's an enactment of that realization right there. Also, just in the totality of everything, it's really amazing to appreciate the ways in which in the moment of giving, there's a receiving. Right? We receive the joy of the giving. We receive the way it gladdens our heart. We receive an awareness of the benefits it will create to others. We receive a sense, particularly in uh, 
more tightly interdependent systems, like in a couple or a relationship or a family or a close work relationship, that what we give out will very quickly come back to us. Similarly, when we receive, our receiving of a gift is our gift to the giver. We let them know, message received, gift received. You know, the eagle has landed. In other words, it's here. Got it. You know, that's our gift to them in a very intertwining um, and interdependent way. It's also the case that appreciating the fruits of our giving is a kind of compassion for oneself. In other words, out of compassion for oneself, uh, it's, it's, um, we, we try to return to our home base. And out of compassion for ourselves, we try to help ourselves appreciate the benefits of our own giving. It's interesting that many people, uh, probably me included, who are really good at being compassionate for others have a harder time being compassionate for themselves. Self-compassion is actually a, a major area of research these days because it's full of benefits. And a, a kind of kindness for oneself says, you know, I should appreciate the fact of the goodness that's been rippling forward from me, little old me. You know, sometimes we think, oh, I got to be perfect, you know, to receive compassion, right? Um, I'll get to that point in a second. Um, but here I think about how by being good to ourselves, in other words, by taking in the fruits of our own giving, we give ourselves more capacity to help other people. You know, I, I really appreciate the ways in which um, practice in Buddhism is, um, it is about developing oneself. It is about training the mind. Certainly uh, for one's own sake, but also for the capacity to help other people. Because it's when our own cup runneth over that we have more that we can offer to others. Sometimes we think that if we take for ourselves, uh, that's selfish. Well, there's a little selfishness in it mainly, but on the other hand, it's, it's a wonderful way to help other people. Because as Bertrand Russell said, you know, the good life is a happy one. Not so much because good people are happy people, but because happy people are good people. In other words, as um, hundreds, probably thousands of studies have shown, generally speaking, uh, it's a lot easier on the average to be generous in giving to others if our own cup runneth over first. So really, on behalf of Spirit Rock and, and also on behalf of myself, I hope that you will really use this day to take in a felt sense of the benefits of your own giving. And do that to feed yourself, to nurture your own practice, to enact a recognition of the truth of everything, the intertwining interdependence of us all here. And because, you know, through receiving yourself, you will be able to keep on giving in the many, many ways that you do in your life that go far and beyond whatever it is that you give to Spirit Rock. But taking in this experience of giving and the gladness of it, what the Buddha called the gladdening of the heart that comes from the recognition of one's own practice and um, the benefits 
one contributes out into the world is actually often kind of hard to do, isn't it? It hits obstructions of various kinds. We think, ah, little old me, or ah, but what about those snarky things I did? Or, well, yeah, but I took four pieces of candy on a retreat. I really only should have taken three and, you know, um, hmm, all the rest of that, right? And that's because the brain has, alas, a kind of negativity bias. In other words, as we evolved, even though it was very important to get those carrots, it was more important to avoid those sticks. Because if you fail to get a carrot today, you'll probably have a chance of one tomorrow. But if you fail to avoid a stick today, wapola, no more carrots forever. So we do have a tendency to take in all day long negative things. The brain really is like Velcro for negative, a Teflon for positive. That's why it's very important through mindfulness, through mindful attention, you know, what William James, you know, or what I would call the combination spotlight and vacuum cleaner. You know, attention illuminates what it rests upon and then sucks it into your brain. Through the power of mindful attention, because neurons that fire together wire together, put our attention on our own goodness, on our own benefits, on the good things we create for other people. That's the way to defeat the negativity bias. That's the way to take in the good of your own giving. So to that end, now we move into the practice portion here. All right? So to that end, I want to invite you to, for a moment, uh, look at these three steps, and I'll talk you through them in a second. This is how to help your brain really, really take in the good. All right? So... Um, I'd like you to bring to mind, if you will, something that you feel grateful for related to Spirit Rock. And then in the first step, let that good fact become a positive experience. And then in the second step, really enjoy that feeling of gratitude. Gently open to and encourage the experience of gratitude so that it fills your mind, your body, gets as intense as possible and lasts as long as possible. And all the while, in the third step, as you sink into it, sense and intend that these feelings of gratitude are sinking into you. Okay. Well, how about we, in the spirit of what Mark said a moment ago, in terms of metta, loving kindness, how about we close in a, a brief practice here, and then we'll have some socializing and hanging out later on. Um, I'm going to post these slides, by the way, on my website if you care to see them. 
and this talk will be posted as well on Dharma Seed. Um, anyway, so if you like, with your eyes open or closed, uh, maybe taking a, a moment to, to look at this summary of the Metta Sutta, the very well-known and well-loved Metta Sutta. You might start out by bringing to mind the felt sense of someone who you know cares about you. A sense of being with someone to whom you matter. Someone who sees you. Doesn't have to be a perfect relationship. Someone who appreciates you. Maybe even loves and cherishes you. And then let yourself open to feeling loved. Feeling cared about. The recipient, the receiver of that person's metta for you. that abiding in that sense of receiving metta, receiving caring, receiving their dana of love, broadly defined. On the basis of that, let your own compassion be aroused. Maybe starting with someone that it's easy to feel compassion for, a friend, a pet, a relative. And then extending that compassion and loving kindness, the wish that others not suffer and instead be truly happy. Sensing that widening perhaps to include some other people in this room. Widening outward. And in this field of feeling both loved and loving, cared about and caring, the receiver and the giver of metta, reflect a bit on some of the many benefits of spirit rock rippling out into the world. thinking about the number of individuals, well over 10,000, who come here every year. And the many more who 
listen to talks from Spirit Rock teachers, read Spirit Rock publications, or are touched by people who have been touched directly by Spirit Rock, who touch others in turn. Reflect on some of those benefits from Spirit Rock rippling out into the world. As your own life and heart and practice has been served by Spirit Rock, so too have others in ways that you can know yourself very intimately in your own case. You got those benefits. Other people got those benefits too. And reflecting now on some of the ways in which your own contributions have been causes and conditions of those benefits for others. Opening to codependent arising, a sense of your own contributions being intertwined with the benefits received by others. Letting these reflections gladden your heart. opening to a happiness, a well-being, perhaps subtle, though maybe pervading, of enjoying the recognition of your contributions to others. taking in the gladness of this recognition and letting it draw you down into your own true nature, the responsive mode of your own brain. Centered and whole, loved and loving. taking in some of the good that comes from your goodness.
opening to a clear sense of your own good heart. sinking into your good-heartedness as good-heartedness sinks into you. taking in the gladdening of the heart through generosity. (coughs) It's happy to be generous. Generosity as your nature. taking in the gratitude of Spirit Rock, our most sincere and heartfelt thanks to you. Our deep, deep respect and appreciation for you taking this in.
Thank you all for your Donna here today, your attention, your kindness, your patience. You know, I appreciated your Donna and hope you'll take in my appreciation for you. It's one big circle. Thanks. I'd like to do something that very rarely happens in this room, and that is a round of applause for Rick. Hey. Thank you. Again, thank you so much for coming. It's such an honor for me to be the steward of, of this group. Um, I am like you. I'm a donor and a, and a supporter and a practitioner here at Spare Rock. For one second, I'd like to bring in the people who aren't here who are like us as well. For, there's about 250 of us here today. For every one of us here, there are 11 other people who are like us, supporters of Spirit Rock, who aren't with us today. It's a large, what I call the Sangha within the Sangha the people for whom the preservation of this institution is of primary importance, and we're so grateful for you. We have some wonderful treats from our kitchen outside, and we also have Gary Mazinski to, to play uh, music for us with an instrument that most people have never seen in their lives. It's quite lovely, and we welcome you to, uh, to mingle. Let's get to know each other. Thank you so much for coming. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.